I was surfing. I was surfing with um, Jamie and Zach R. He used to work at Octopus back in the day, and I remember this because it was his girlfriend's uh, first time surfing. She's really nervous about it, so we went to this place that we thought it would be kind of chill and um, not have not have a ton of people around because Santa Cruz is like there's a there's if there's potential for a wave, there's twelve people there, and so anyway, we go out there. We're floating around. And this this guy just like strolls up on the beach, just naked. He's walking around. Is the whole new meaning to hang ten? Uh, he, I mean, he was just walking around in the sand. <laughs> That's when you discovered why there were no other surfers there, right? There were a couple. So <laughs> there's Opal Cliffs. There's like this beach called Privates because there's the big gate that like it's like a big iron gate that normally just closes it off the stairs. Uh, I guess there was a lawsuit. A few years back, people were suing, like saying, hey, you can't close off the beach because it's not technically like private land. It can't be. It's public land. So you can't close off access to it. So now there's just a big iron gate that's always open. Uh, And so I guess like down there is where some people sometimes tan up. (laughs) Fun times. Yeah. Fun times. Anyway. Yeah, it's been been super nice. Like uh, There's There's a fun spot joke in there somewhere. I've never been to the fun spot. <laughs> Don't go. It's, see uh, the bumper stickers? Yeah. We're going to take Watson there and see what happens. See him lean sideways. Yeah, it's pretty, uh, it was pretty lame, but if you're into that sort of lame entertainment, then <laughs> by all means. I've not done most of the tour- touristy things, I guess, that people come here to do. I've been to the boardwalk, but apart from that, uh, yeah, not really done much else. Um, I feel like I'm starting to come out of a slump, which has been really nice. And I think that's the opposite of some of my, my coworkers because it's been really hot up there. Apparently, actually, it's been like almost 100 degrees in the north. Jeez. Yeah. I think Portland, Paul, has Portland been, been warm as well? I've been hearing people talking about how it's warm. And like it was like that way maybe early or later last week. But and I was having trouble focusing. But this week I felt like I've been doing a lot better. That's good. Well, I mean, it also sounds like, I mean, the weather certainly helps, but uh, you're, it's, you're definitely starting to hit your stride with, uh, you know, you've been, you've been doing this sort of refactoring, type scripting, you know, massive overhaul of your code base. And now it seems like you're starting to get in the swing of things and actually get to sort of be productive and do <laughs> maybe fun and more interesting things with it. Maybe. I don't, I don't know. Um, yeah, I guess a little bit. We're making progress. We're definitely making progress on that. Today actually was a little frustrating because it's I have to okay, I have to like I have to lay the canvas out for you, okay? So the UI is built on top of MUI, uh React MUI Material UI. And it, you have to so the theme originally was put together and MUI kind of has like these ideas even though it's not strongly typed they're like okay, the the theme.palette holds objects. So theme.palette.main uh, would have like primary, secondary, whatever. And then theme.palette.x would have primary, secondary, whatever. And so what happened was uh, when it was originally set up, people started adding just things to the palette willy-nilly. So you had like objects, some objects, some were just strings. So you had like kind of a mixed types being tossed onto that. And of course with, with JS, like it works, uh, and you know, that's, it's probably like, it was, it works fine. It's not like super organized, but it works fine. So when you start converting the TypeScript, 
it's not fine. Uh, so, well, I mean, it'll technically work. This is like this whole gray area. Actually, one thing that was kind of fun this week is I, I go through, I still subscribe to Execute Program. And so it's uh, just, I just run through like code exercises and it uses space repetition. So if I get something wrong, it'll re- like in six days or whatever, it'll say like, hey, you know, read up on this lesson, right? So I take screenshots of some of the problems sometimes and share them in the channel and say, what's the answer, you know? Uh, and today I was actually talking with the team about how uh, sometimes TypeScript can give you this sort of false sense of safety. So let's say you have an object that has lots of keys in it and you make a type that only covers a portion of the keys. Uh, and maybe the object has sensitive information. So like, let's say you have a session object and that session object maybe has user identifiable information. And then you have a type that maybe like documents some keys that aren't user identifiable information. Well, runtime, it doesn't matter. Like if you, if you narrow it down to the type and shoot over the wire at runtime, the type script is gone. You're just sending all the information over the wire. So just kind of like driving home the fact that remember the type stuff is basically compile time safety. It's not the type trip goes away. It's not there in runtime. So it's different worlds. Yeah, it's uh, it's no more of a guarantee. I mean, it's stricter than type hinting, I guess. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. I mean, the Python and now Ruby are starting to get type hinting. I don't know if, like, can you configure those languages to basically, oh, error on warn? Like, can you get a Ruby program to, like, blow up at you if the types don't match? I don't know. Oh, you mean like Elixir, how you can do that? You can uh, um, error on, I think it's actually error on warn, isn't it? Um, you can definitely do it in Elixir. Yeah, yeah. we, we uh, that what you should do for any non-trivial project. Uh, but, but Elixir's type checking, you have to bring in a uh, dialyzer, mm-hmm. which, uh, is, uh, has its own, it comes with its own can of worms. <laughs> right. But maybe it's like, it's more of like, uh, you know, like the, uh, when you get married, you have a bunch of cans behind the car. This is dialyzer with cans dragging behind the car, <laughs> each of them full of worms. Right, right. And then a fan in front of it to keep uh, the CPU cool. <laughs> Dude, I actually <laughs> I, uh, I actually had to get a mic because uh, I was using my internal mic on my laptop and people were like, Dude, I can hear your fan all the time. It was, it was yep. not, yep, yep. It was not sustainable. Yeah, so I'll get, I'll get to the MUI stuff here in a second. Hopefully it's maybe interesting when I get to it. But uh, yeah, so with, with TypeScript, I mean, depends on how you set it up. You can get that. But uh, how these projects are set up is that the JS is actually compiled with Babel, and Babel uh, the the Babel transformer for TypeScript just removes TypeScript. It doesn't actually do any type checking. So uh, when you start the dev server, it starts TSE Watch, which is the type checker from TypeScript, and it starts Babel, which is the JS you know side of it, or Webpack, which uses Babel transformer. So essentially, just Babel. So you have two processes running. Uh, so there's not really a way for you to beyond NCI fail the job if T- if TypeScript doesn't type check. You know, there's not really a way for you to get that safety beyond like team enforcement or CI enforcement. Um, now, if you're using um, TSE to actually emit the source code instead of Babel, then you know, of course, it's not going to compile if it fails. But you have to make that choice. Do you use Git hooks at all for that? Uh, no, we just have CI set up with some runners on the pipeline. So it lints it, it type checks it, it checks for, um, what's the command NPM, uh, the security, the sec- looks for security vulnerabilities. It's, uh, 
there's a word, I can't think of it right now, but yeah, so it checks for security vulnerabilities, moderate and above. So it won't, it won't let you merge any code in if it includes any of those, including dependencies, like security issues from dependencies. So there have been a few times where we had to like fork until the, the repository or the dependency actually fixed it. Um, for the Dockyard project I'm on, they have Git hooks so that before you can even push, it runs a bunch of stuff locally. Sanity checks, uh, Dialyzer, Credo, uh, NPM, like prettier formatting checks, Elixir format checks, a bunch of other stuff. And let me tell you, it's a really friggin' pain in the ass. Cause <laughs> I was going to ask about that. Does it slow you down at all? Cause uh, well, it does. It really does. Uh, because it makes you want to push less often, right? Which is not conducive when you're, you know, if you're pairing with someone and you're on the same branch, like that. That just basically just doesn't work, you know. You can't do it because it just slows you down too much. Uh, you can, you know, try to, to have two branches and merge between them, and I don't know, man. And then switching, bra- it's now you get me all fired up. Yeah, yeah. Now you get me all fired up. But uh, the 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 slowest thing in that whole process is the um, I believe it's dialyzer. And basically, whenever you switch branches, you it basically all the source files change. And it has to recompile everything. You can't rely on the cache, right? And all the dependencies, no, you can't. You can't Mm -hmm. cache it because all the versions are things. So it's uh, switching branches also a pain, which makes me want to switch branches less, which is uh, problematic. You know, like if you're doing a demo and you want to demo two different things in a call, like forget it. You can't, like, (laughs) because it would be too slow for you to do the demo. You'd have to like wait and have someone else do a demo and then come back to you just so you could switch branches to the new other thing. Um, That's a bummer. Yeah, it's but it 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 really is. It really is. Uh, it doesn't help that these uh, you know the fans are always going to the MacBook, but um, but it really does um does prevent a lot of issues. It, it from uh, it does prevent a lot of problems from getting into GitHub. You know, yeah, we have CI there, but guess what? Like that almost never ever ever fails because we um test everything before it goes up. Well, of course, the other Git hook is running tests, right? The tests have to pass before you can push. So um, we we almost never have CI failures, <laughs> except if it's something that's really, really wrong. Sure. I guess that's not. I mean, it's just pushing one sort of source of frustration to a different stack because for like in my case, I can push and forgot to, you know, forget to bump the package version of the UI kit that we're building. And though everything will run 12 minutes and I see it fails, I'm like, Damn it. Okay. NPM, uh, I forget. I, I have a alias for it, but it just, you know, bumps the package versions and stuff. Yeah. Uh, so we, we were talking about... Oh, yeah. Sorry. So you're talking about how um, TypeScript not errors can only really be caught in CI. That's how, we're, how, that's how they're caught here in, in our situation. Sure, sure, uh, sure. Yeah, yeah. So, and and getting back to MUI again, like d- d- we basically were having sort of these conflated uh, ideas, kind of pushed into the same object. And so, when you go to the MUI doc- MUI documentation, no, it's like doesn't necessarily hold, actually reflect reality in in the case of this project. Uh, and and so then, you know, we start converting things to TypeScript. That's something they wanted. They were excited about. So we're you know we're excited about it too because the actual quality of life of developing the other applications that we're working with is actually way better uh, when, when we're using the, the TypeScript version of this, this project. So 
I, I take on the responsibility of doing it and I start thinking, like I have, I have to start researching like, okay, how do I actually type MUI? And turns out you have to rely on a feature in TypeScript called module augmentation. Uh, so yeah, you basically declare the module and then inside of that, you can actually like go in t- into this de- definition and like change how it's defined in your code. <laughs> so like, let's say that you have theme.palette.com uh, header bar and you're putting header bar into it well that's not a valid mui thing to be theming so you have to override you know that definition and say this is a member of the theme object and so yeah like you're, you're monkey patching types you're monkey patching like. types yeah yeah and uh, 200 lines later uh, i've got what <laughs> appears to be uh you know something that pretty closely reflects what in reality is happening in the theme. Uh, and to be honest, like I could have gone deeper. There were a few places where I just typed it as sort of record string unknown or record string string. So you don't actually get real completion, which would be nice. But again, those things are very, very low traffic and they don't change often. So I figured it was worth the trade off at this point to not do that. So yeah, we got the theme. That was a the whole thing. Theme's nice to, nice to work with. And so now we're going through and converting components one by one. Uh, so all what of that, that, what does that mean? Converting components? Oh, uh, from JS to TS. Oh, sure, sure, sure. So one of the issues here is that, you know, half the code base is JS, half the code base is TS. Uh, and when you, when you emit types, so with the, with the TypeScript compiler, you can have an option where it says, don't emit TypeScript code, like don't turn the TS to JS, but instead emit definition files. So it'll emit the types uh, to uh, .d.ts files next to the JS files, but it won't actually, you know, because again, we're using Babel to make the JS from the TS, right? So when you do that, there are certain situations that uh, it types pretty strictly. So let's say you have a component and one of the, the props it takes is a class name as string, right? So you can basically just slap extra classes onto a component and override styles. Uh, so... Uh, by default, then it's undefined, right? If you don't actually send an argument, then the you know the class name prop there will be undefined. So, you know that's totally valid. But when you generate type definitions for that, TypeScript is going to say, "Oh, uh, class name is a required uh, prop." So now in your UI, like in the apps that are using the UI kit, you have TypeScript errors all over because you didn't specify class name, even though it's not required. So that means you have to manually go and convert the component or update the the typing or add a default value to it of like undefined, right? Because that's essentially class name question mark in TypeScript. So that's kind of where we're at is uh, we weren't totally able to really... So originally the apps themselves made an empty module declaration for the UI kit. So that way TypeScript wouldn't complain. So if you remove that, you get all the TypeScript errors from the UI kit. If you put it back, they go away. Right. So it's kind of, but that way we can keep working on the thing. It's kind of something we have to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, So yeah, this, that's kind of the stage we're in now is going through and in one project, I'll take out the shim basically. And then I will work on the TypeScript side of the conversion and then go over to the other app and see like, is anything broken? How many errors do I have now? Kind of thing. So that's the process. It reminds me a lot of DK days, to be honest. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, yeah, so it, that's going okay. But it's I'm learning a lot of stuff about React typing specifically. So types in TypeScript aren't that difficult. Like, they can get difficult. Uh, but 
by themselves. They're not that difficult. When you when you throw React into it, it starts to get a little bit hairier because I, I find it hard to find like actual documentation about this stuff or reference material to look at about this stuff. I have to kind of Google around, wade through articles, things like that, or just go straight to the source code. Or in this case, you have to go to like the definitely typed repository. So then you're looking at these long, long files of type definitions and stuff. So that's the hardest part for me to kind of struggle through right now is... Uh, okay, we have a text component, and since it's a functional component, uh, you have to forward a ref through because it doesn't have a ref for itself. And then uh, there are like any number of you know types to choose from. And then let's say you have a text component that's polymorphic, so you can actually say this one is a paragraph, this one is a span, this one is an H1. How do you type that? And then how do you wrap it in a create ref and type that? So I learned that today, but <laughs> it was difficult. <laughs> to kind of sort myself around. So it's not so much like the TypeScript stuff that makes me tired. It's, it's again, same thing with, I guess, the Node stuff I've been talking about. It's the ecosystem that sort of burns me out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if all that was like a bad explanation, but <laughs> it's really hard to, there's so many rabbit holes here to like have to, you have to go down to, to arrive like where I was kind of stuck today. <laughs> the more, the more you get into this, the more it seems like you're just, becoming an expert on TypeScript, like just out of necessity, more or less. Yeah, yeah. So I I saw an interesting question on Twitter the other day, and it was, uh, at what point do you go from beginning React to intermediate React? And I was kind of reading the responses there, and there were some interesting responses. Like some people were like, as soon as you get into component composition, you're starting to get into like intermediate land. Or as soon as you start to understand refs uh, and uh, I guess maybe I should talk about refs for a second because I'm talking about them a lot now. Uh, but like uh, in in React, let's say that you have uh, an input and you need to interact with the input itself. Uh, you would do that with a ref. So you create a ref and you pass it to the input and the ref you created now holds the actual you know, API that you can use to interact with the DOM itself, not the React side, but the actual DOM itself. It's a real HTML DOM element. Mm-hmm object not a fake weird react thing right so it's useful if you're using like third parties that aren't react or if you have to like interact with the dom in a way uh that's it's more imperative than you know that's what they're used for essentially it it really is supposed to be an escape hatch right it gives you a way to do things that you couldn't otherwise do just purely reactively yes you don't you don't actually start to have to mess with them a lot until you start writing library code which i think maybe is why people were saying that's a good indicator that you're getting out of beginner land intermediate sometimes advanced land yeah um what amazes me about hearing about the typescript stuff is that you're still finding new things to learn about you've been doing you're doing it a lot you've been doing you know learning a lot and you're still finding weird corner case things that are covered by typescript that you have to implement because of reasons and that just <laughs> that just blows my mind it seems like this endless pit of of uh i don't know things to know so the things to know typically aren't necessarily about typescript itself it's the way that you have to sort of manipulate typescript to work with these apis that have existed for decades before i saw gary bernhardt talking about this the creator of execute program talking about this and how people were saying something along the lines of wouldn't have been awesome if you know html had 
these types in the first place and all that. And he was like, why, why even, why are we going down this road? It's not, that's not how it is. The, the complexities I'm dealing with are, you know, working with APIs that have existed for decades and there are so many edge cases and variations and things. So that's what really makes it more difficult to sort of wrap your head around. And it's been, it's been like pretty okay, honestly. Like I haven't ever felt overwhelmed. I think mainly it's because it's been, you know, only half of my job, the other half like keeps me busy too. So I'm not feeling too, you know, kind of thrown into the deep end. So I get to zone in on it and then I get a break. So for me, I think the most beneficial thing of having the role change has been sort of, I mean, we were talking about this earlier, right? Like I would rather, you know, not spend all weekend, eight hours each day working on the yard or the house or whatever. I'd, you know, I'd rather spend a few hours here and there, but if I spend a few hours and I'm consistent with it, it adds up, right? Spaced repetition, Sean. Yeah, so I'm kind of getting that in my job. I'm getting isolated from it, pulled away from it, so I'm not sort of dwelling on it all the time. And what really that amounts to is I get breaks often, which means that I come back with a fresh mind or like having my mind cleared, I can reapproach the problem. So I'm really bad at getting up away from my computer taking breaks, but uh, my role pulls me elsewhere. So I find that I'm always sort of excited to get back to, okay, now I came back to programming. And that kind of like gives me that energy to keep going, so... You got the yeah. carrot on the stick. Yeah, kind of, yeah, yeah. It's exactly like that. So, yeah, it's been difficult and I'm learning a lot, but it's, I've also had a lot of fun kind of sharing that knowledge back. Like I said, going through Execute Program and, you know, sharing exercises to be like, what's the answer to this? And so today I was teaching uh, my devs about discriminated uh, unions. It's kind of like it's kind of like the typing of like a tag tuple, right? You have okay, payload, error, payload, right? Um, so with the discriminated union it's just that in a type you have, might have like successful response error response and so then you might have a response type that is the union of success and error uh but if you if you have a value where you try to say okay but then give a error reason that's not a valid type right it's a discriminated union so it's like you uh it's a choose your own adventure or no i guess it's not a choose your own adventure but it's like it, the parts of the type depend on other parts of the type matching something some correct. pattern well there yeah there's a there's a correct state and incorrect state and there are multiple uh pieces of information that go into deciding whether it's incorrect or correct but you can't mix and match them <sighs> it's one or the yeah. other it can't be both yeah 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 so i pattern matching sean i just dropped a, a trick question on him and i was like what's the answer <laughs> you know uh, but I was, I also was like, I didn't know this before not that long ago. So don't feel bad for not knowing this, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, so it's been, it's been kind of fun. Like as I'm learning, I'm kind of like trying to teach it as well because it helps me internalize it too. So I think that's, that's helped a lot. Yeah. That especially like that discriminated union thing that that's something that you, how would you even know that that exists without just reading it you know like you, you can't look at yeah. you can't stare at a problem if you don't know this is a thing you can't stare at a problem and know that this is a way to solve it unless you like knew that ahead of time <laughs> and you can't even google it maybe you could if you found the right you know stack overflow post but that's uh that's crazy yeah so it's it's kind of like what we were talking about last week with estimations and and sultan and saying like how do you approach the situation where what you're estimating is constantly stuff you've never done and i this is kind of similar uh you know i came across it because someone else had come across it because someone else came across it because someone thought it <laughs> up right or a group of people have thought about it or you know it's not like someone had the idea of discriminated unions out of nowhere 
there is probably a path to that and I just happened to come across it and I'm trying to help them come across it too. Uh, so yeah, trying to be that network for them, I guess, but yeah, it's, it's definitely like something where I'm like, Hey, I don't just know this stuff. I only know this because, well, for example, I got stuck on something and I asked a friend and he knew the answer. And so I was like, Hey everybody, I fixed the thing. Oh, by the way, I didn't fix it. It was my friend told me to fix it. So I'm trying to be very transparent with them. They're like, you could have just said that you fixed it and taken credit. And it's like, but you know, I want to, I want to make sure that you guys feel like whatever I'm doing is attainable too. You can have friends that know answers as well. Just ask them stuff. <laughs> so we've been having, we've been having these, uh, sort of informal code review sessions with our client who, uh, you know, they're a developer client but they don't have a ton of Elixir experience. And so uh, we just kind of sit down with them and hang out and show them just kind of interesting things that we've come across and worked on that's relevant to the project. Uh, and I try to approach it from a teaching perspective where it's like, hey, here's here's the thing that we did that you might see that seems a little strange or, you know, or this is novel, but here's the reason why. And, you know, try to use that as a learning experience. And so... um just today, like I was showing one of our live views and I was like, oh, here's a way you can reduce memory usage on a live view because, you know, live views are processes that are long lived and, you know, they live on a server as long as someone has a web page open, right? And uh, coming from someone who's primarily a Rails developer, has Rails background, he's like, oh, like I didn't even think, forgot that live views are just sticking around, you know, like <laughs> that's a concern that you have to think about when you're, when you're dealing with these things is that, that you have state living on the server for a long time. And so if you can easily, you know, if you can optimize for that, uh, or you might have to optimize for that, especially if you've got a lot of traffic, right. Or you yeah. have really big or deep data model where you've got lots of stuff preloaded in memory. You just, you do want to sort of minimize that. So, right. Um, little, little sort of teaching moments like that. I think are uh, go a long way in sort of building the, I don't know, building the rapport with, with whoever you're working with or for. Yeah. But I, I think like, I don't know, it's always encouraging to hear about those things too. So I, I, I kind of mentioned that I've, I've been getting out of a, a bit of a rut and feeling, feeling, I don't know, just good about my skills and good about uh, stuff that I'm working on. Uh, and it feels nice to be back there. I've, I felt like I haven't. I felt like I haven't really been in the groove like I was at DK for a long time, a very long time. Uh, but I'm getting back there, and it's it's fun to be in a place where you know some side projects where like the boring stuff is done, like auth is done. You know how how I'm storing things is is decided and done. My orums are like um, those are done. So now I'm just like, okay, what problems? I have the tools now. What problems need solving here? So just kind of like sitting down and brainstorming something I want to build and just building it and it feels nice. So, uh, I think that's kind of like, it's given me momentum and, the, and it's keeping my momentum going. Right. So it's sort of like a building, building on a, a thing, which has been, which has been really awesome. Yeah. The feeling of, uh, acceleration and momentum. Yeah. That's, uh, it's hard to quantify, but some, sometimes you just have to like feel it, I guess. Right. And it's also, I think, also partly attributed to I'm um, finding tools that I like. I'm starting to like get my toolbox with when it comes to like Node or TypeScript. Uh, 
So yeah, it just so happens to be that I, like I found those things. And so now I'm beyond the, I have to look something up every time I want to do something kind of Mm -hmm. approach, which really like what I wanted to get to was past that. So that way I can start thinking about concepts and trying to implement things that are difficult. So, um, that feels fun, like over engine, like way over engineering your side projects, right? Like that's, (laughs) that's the thing. That's the thing. Well, the other thing is you're not spending time researching a million different options to solve your problem. Now, you know, you, you know, like you said, you've got your tool set. You don't have to go sort of looking for it every time. Yeah. So maybe I can talk. Uh, I don't know if this is interesting because, uh, again, it's all TypeScript. But uh, So the, the stuff I'm working with now, like I'm using, I'm using, uh, uh, what's it called? Prisma. I'm using Prisma for my ORM layer because, uh, honestly, the docs are good and the experience has been great so far. That those are the two big. Re- well, I haven't used it a ton. Like I haven't gotten way deep yet, but it's been nice to work with, and the docs are super complete, so it feels good. And it's it's been really nice, honestly. Like just running npm or npx Prisma Studio and just having the database GUI, you know, just there. It's it's convenient what, in a browser. In the browser, it's it's convenient. That's okay? cute. That's and, cute. Yeah, it's convenient. And then um, having that available in production too, I'm using railway, but you could do this other ways. I just run railway run, you know, Prisma studio. And now I got my production database. I can tinker with if I want to there. Uh, so Jamie's like, change this thing. I'm like, okay, Prisma studio, it's done. You know, I don't have to build anything for it. It's nice. Uh, so yeah, I'm using Prisma for that. Also, oh, also having e, the, the, uh, database layer be kind of type safe is really nice. So everything's auto completed. All my options are there. I don't have to think about it. I can just type in, you know, tab, enter, tab, enter, tab, enter, and the thing works, which is, is really nice, <laughs> to be honest. Active, not active record. Uh, what, .NET was doing that from uh, from day one with their uh, ADO.NET. Right, yeah, yeah. But like, go, you know, I think I think Elixir LS has it now where it can complete your attributes, your, your model, uh, not model, sorry, what are they called? Schemas. Your schemas, yeah. You can get schema completion. I don't those little quality of light things really add up for me. Um yeah, so so it's been fine. Let's see. So Prisma, uh, I've been using Remix a bit and it's it's fine. It's pretty early days still, so I've been messing with Next too, and I guess it probably would be good to be familiar with Next anyway, uh, for work things possibly. Uh so again Especially especially with some of the stuff, cool stuff that Next has. Next has coming down the pipeline with um like we were talking a few weeks ago about the the I forget what the feature was called the server side rendered rendering basically right where it where it caches pages on the fly oh incremental uh yeah yeah, yeah incremental generation yeah seems pretty cool right yeah yeah and then you know ssg isn't needed for everything ssr rather isn't needed for everything but I don't know. Next has a nice way of working with it, uh, and that and Next has a quite a few middlewares for authentication, which work really well too. So there's like a few big ones that there's like one called Next Auth, I think that it will even like add tables to your database. Basically, it's like the whole thing, like it's the whole the whole uh, Auth experience there, and it has adapters for social login and everything. I'm not using that. Um, the one I picked was Next Iron Session, which is basically actually patterned off of how Rails does authentication out of the box. So you have a cookie that you just encode data into and decode data out of the cookie when you need it. Uh, so, of course, there's some trade-offs around that, but it works great. It's simple, easy, it's approachable, and I can continue using Firebase for my authentication stuff. So works great. Cool. Yeah. That's basically it. And Tailwind. <laughs> 
So aside from that, like everything else, you know, is just TypeScript or just JS or just Node, whatever. So, I mean, Next gives you API routes. So essentially you have, you know, APIs that you can build on the fly routes here and there for things you might need without having to move it to a whole external service. That's a little bit rough around the edges uh, because they sort of have their own, like when I was talking about with Remix, how they use the the platform, like they have the request and response objects from the browser in node space, like they're equivalent. They're not exactly the same, but they're equivalent. Well, the next is just not that at all. It's very different. So <laughs> I was like, request, okay, I should have, oh, no, it's not there. What about, oh, that's not there either. What about, nope, oh, that's not there either. So you end up ultimately bolting uh, something called like next connect in. So basically connect style middleware that was kind of made popular by Express, but it's like request response next function kind of thing. You had a function, takes three arguments, so they're always the same. And if it doesn't error, you call next and it moves on to the next stack of the pipeline. That's basically it. So you can toss that into next if you want. And now you got your express style API endpoints. Uh, so it's pretty easy. It's it's pretty like once you learn that, it's like now it's pretty simple. Basically like very, essentially very few dependencies. And then once you get into that land, um, you basically can do whatever you want to. So you basically can just make your own. If you want to use DDD, you can do that. If you don't, you can not use it. You can just build the app however you want to. I totally forgot about that pattern of like having this next function that lets you asynchronously like trigger something in a pipeline. Mm-hmm. I I I'm getting weird flashbacks to I think it was Fay WebSocket in the Ruby gem. It was, a, it, was a web, it was a WebSocket client and server, and I believe the server portion, the way you implemented middlewares, was like that where you implemented a couple of functions, but they, you got in this sort of next thing that you could call uh, when you were done, you know, ready for the next thing in the pipeline. And I ended up, I think I also implemented one just for fun as like a general purpose pipeline thing, I think in Ruby. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But uh, well, I guess what's kind of nice about it is that these, it's such pre- it's so prevalent in the ecosystem. You know, if you needed to spin something out to a different service, you could essentially copy and paste a lot of stuff as a starting point, uh, and then you just keep the URL and the next route is like a little shim, and it's there. It's fine. Uh, so, for example, uh, with Rodinia, when you share a story, uh, you know, especially like I primarily use it on my phone, so. I don't want to have to like go and copy the URL, paste it, go back, like swipe right on my thumb, go back, clap, click the title, paste it in the thing. I actually just want to paste the URL, have it go and fetch the metadata of the page for me and fill out the form and then I can tweak as needed. So uh, that won't really work client side because a lot of these sites don't have cores enabled. It just won't, the request won't go through. So uh, all I did was I made an API endpoint for fetching metadata that just happens on the server. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Easy. It's easy. Yeah, it, it was a nice, just simple solution. So worked worked uh, worked great. So essentially, yeah, how that's how the authentication works now with, with my next stuff is that I just have login, log out, and viewer endpoints and the, the front end just uses it. Why don't you just use JWTs, Sean? What if you have to invalidate the session, Sean? Again, I would have sold the company by this point before I have to worry <laughs> about these things. <laughs> yeah. But no, it feels I feel the tools feel familiar and they feel well documented and they're they're popular. So um it's easy to uh look up things that I might not know how to do or get inspired by things that people are doing. So how uh customizable do you get with your tailwind? 
not really at all. Yeah, just wondering, like, because uh, yeah, things can look. You're you're a good designer, so I imagine you probably play with it. You can make Tailwind not look like Tailwind, oh, unlike yeah. me. I yeah, I don't know. I'm not very motivated to do that at this point, but I probably should be or will be at one point in the future. When you can hire a designer, when you can afford to hire a designer, right? So yeah, so like Matt's like, does it scale? And if it if it doesn't, I just slap Crystal on a, on a server and I think I think he's trolling. Yeah, I think Matt's he, trolling. He definitely is. I just wanted to bring Crystal up. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know. It feels good. It feels uh, the tools are simple. Um, they're approachable. I know I've complained a lot about in the past about having to rebuild stuff, but the amount of glue I'm having to do right now is really pretty minimal, to be honest. I think that's largely in part of just using Firebase for auth. Like that whole side of it's just, you know, I don't have to deal with it. Um, so I think that really, that really helped a lot. Yeah. We're having the, the auth discussion with our client on their application now. Like we just have a very, very, very basic thing in there now that, you know, just it's basically hand rolled and it works. But uh, now we're having the, which package do you use? Do we roll our own, you know, that whole thing in Elixir land and uh yeah yeah a lot of lot of uh options there for sure well yeah a lot of stuff to be just done i guess right so i mean that kind of like segues into a conversation i was having with matt here uh i hope he doesn't hope you don't mind matt if i talk about this a little bit but we were talking about that uh he he does some streaming in the crystal discord sometimes uh just working on lucky and and uh, avram i think it's called right the crystal orm for lucky and i sort of asked like why you know why are you you know you kind of working in this ecosystem and it reminds me of earlier on in elixir where you needed something it shouldn't exist but you didn't necessarily have the time to write it and maintain it or you know the energy to write it and maintain it so <laughs> Uh, you know, you kind of get stuck in, in that land a little bit. And his answer was really actually cool, like something I had not considered. And he basically said that uh, he started getting into Crystal because the opportunity was right and the the level of complexity of getting involved in it was was right. So it, it feels much more difficult to say contribute to Rails these days, right? Or contribute to Ruby or contribute to some of these mature things that have been around for years and years and years. The uh, Barrier to entry maybe is just really high. Whereas with Crystal, the opportunity was there to work on things that he was interested in, work work on a compiler, work on uh, an ORM. And because the, the barrier to entry wasn't so high, it was easier to kind of get in there and do those things that seem sort of unattainable. Like I, I wouldn't think that I could work on an ORM personally, right? But Matt was like, you can't. You just, you know, you have to find something where the barrier to entry isn't so high that it doesn't discourage you from getting started. Yeah, I mean, uh, take Bodyguard, for example. My friend uh, Eric, I, I wrote it, and this was, you know, this is many years ago. This is Elixir 1.2, uh, 1. 1.3, like pre-context days, right? And uh, he's like, this is really early on for Elixir and Phoenix. This could be the next Rails. This is, you should just release this just because. Because like, it, like you said, it's early days. The barrier entry is pretty low. And uh, people, you know, you saw a need for it. Other people could use it. And uh, so I, I, he basically like made me release it on a dare. <laughs> you know, that's what it felt like. You won't. Like, fine. Fine, whatever. Yeah, right. And, uh, you know, here I am with, you know, it's got, got quite, a, quite a number of users, which is, uh, which is cool. But, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, a small, cool. that's a small, very, very simple library. I haven't had to maintain it and grow it over the years, thank God. 
<laughs> you know, just kind of keep it up to date. Uh, you know, it's not like a constant labor of love or anything. So that that part is easier uh, in terms of you know, it's not maintaining a full RM, right? Yeah. Um, um the point the point is completely valid and and totally true. And uh, yeah, it almost feels not manipulative, but like you're taking advantage of the situation. But that's you're 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 adding to the ecosystem, right? You're 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 uh, the amount of effort to grow the thing is much lower. And I think that maybe, and again, I haven't done this, but I think that the maybe satisfaction is a little bit higher too, because you could, you know, build a package that already exists a hundred times over for, for node, or you could build it for crystal and doesn't exist yet. And people could actually like, there's actual need for it. So to me, that would be more satisfying or I'd, I'd feel like I would enjoy that a little bit more if I were releasing something that was necessary. So uh, I, 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 I felt like. You know, I think like part of this momentum that I've got going on is I forgot how much I enjoyed sort of looking at a thing that's been done that I've done and sort of looking at it and breaking it down and how can I do this better? What's a different approach? Is there a different approach here? Uh, what have I learned since last time I looked at this that I can use to make it better? And I feel like I'm starting to get into that spot again, which makes me feel like I can actually see the the differences. Like Last time I worked on this, this was the only thing I could come up with. Now I'm looking at it, it's a stupid, right? So you kind of like feel the gains or the growth that you've made. So I think that's the other part of it too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, also, it's just more fun working on greenfield things, you know? <laughs> it sucks to reinvent the wheel, but it, it's fun doing a cool new thing, uh, especially if it's informed by mistakes that were made by all the previous things that you're sort of replicating that that does feel good it's really uh it's really satisfying yeah and it, it has also been a lot of fun too because uh the side project that i'm working on now with with jamie another friend of mine's actually working on it too just for fun uh and that's been that's been cool just to like look at the github and oh this card moved into a different column and i didn't do it that's that's kind of fun let me look <laughs> at it you know so it's been it's been it's been nice i don't know that was i mean again that was one of the reasons why i wanted to move to metal lab anyways for working with more people and i'm definitely getting that now uh but i didn't realize how much um i'm sure at some point it could be stressful like you know that feeling of ownership or control sometimes you want to maintain that but uh currently it's it's more motivating than than anything and I think the the big thing is that for this project, again, like I'm going to reference a blog post that Greg Shear wrote, uh, where like, you know, side projects always, you don't have to approach them like a business. It could be for fun. It could be a throwaway. It could be for learning experimentation or whatever. And so I'm, I've been working really hard to sort of remove that from my brain, that always be grinding, always be whatever mentality that I've, that I've gotten over the years. It doesn't have to be a hustle. It doesn't have to be a hustle. Honestly, I mean, I was talking with, uh, we had a, a, we have these things that, not a thing, we have a robot that's, that schedules calls with people that you've never met before in the company. So every couple of weeks, it'll just say, you two have a Zoom chat. <laughs> uh, they're called donut calls. And I met somebody and she is a musician as well. And so we were just talking about that and uh, sort of equating it. She's a designer. And we're sort of, you know, just kind of like trying to find common ground to relate to each other. And she was asking me about the music stuff and why, like, would I, do I still play? Do I enjoy it? Would I do it again? All that stuff. And I think a lot of it was, a lot of my not enjoying it honestly came from me being younger and me being insecure about myself. And I think that 
I think that really had a lot to do with it. The fact that, um, that, that there are so many musicians and that there are so many, like there was always a joke like around Nashville, like you don't get a coffee and your barista is a better musician than you would ever be. The barista plays three instruments, you know, and you only play one. And so that sort of, I don't know why that weighed on me so heavily, but it made me insecure and it made me feel like I had to always be grinding and working and hustling. Right. And that's, that wasn't healthy for me. And so it kind of, I, I didn't enjoy it anymore. Right. Uh, and so I think now I'm starting to like maybe process some of this stuff and work through it and, and deal with it. Uh, and didn't think I'd be talking about that at all, but, uh, I'm maybe starting to realize that, you know, things I'm working on recently, like I've been learning about myself in this way and I'm translating to stuff I'm doing uh, that way. So I really like the idea of those, uh, those random calls. That sounds like fun. Yeah. That was one of my sort of hangups was when joining Dockyard was like, you're just sort of thrown into it, into a, you know, professional relationship with a bunch of people you've never met before and don't know, you know, at all dynamics or anything about them as people. Right. And I, want to know like you know i uh i like to have that connection with people not just you know as two code monkeys staring at each other over a long wire across the internet so um obviously i've gotten to know people i work with now a little bit more but i still wish there was more opportunity for me uh, especially with remote work to bridge forge those bonds bridge those gaps yeah we're trying really hard with my teams particularly to sort of do that, but also make sure that we don't feel like we're in Groundhog Day uh, every day, right? Because, uh, you know, they're, you know, California is open now, but Canada isn't. So they're not, you know, able to go to the office or go to a coffee shop or sort of get out a little bit. And I know that feeling, like when I moved to Vermont, I didn't have a car and I couldn't walk anywhere because we were in the middle of nowhere. So, you know, Jamie's like, you're losing your mind. You got to get out of the house. And so she signed me up for jujitsu, right? But, you know, with the pandemic, you don't have that out. You don't necessarily, you can't go and train jujitsu. or you can maybe go for a bike ride or something, but uh, it's just different, you know? So we've been trying to find ways to change it up, whether that's um, doing co-working sessions via Zoom in the afternoons or uh, doing more pair programming exercises or, uh, you know, before some meetings, just lighten up a little bit, tell some jokes, things like that. So, yeah. I mentioned earlier about how we have uh, co-chairing calls with the client. And uh, I tried to propose at our last stand-up, hey, this would be cool. Strictly optional. You know, just you don't have to come if you're busy or don't care. But, like, it'd be cool to have some calls internally for, like, talking about code stuff. Uh, And uh, I I actually had to miss the stand-up because I was away. But uh, apparently it was just completely shot down. (laughs) Which is totally fine. Like, I get it. I, I didn't really... That's kind of what I expected, to be honest. But uh, I guess enough people have, people have enough meetings as it is. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Whatever. I mean, my meeting... I was on, 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 the, I was on the horn yesterday for like five hours, so... <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, bas- like, I'm basically pairing 24-7... Or not 24-7, but pairing eight hours a day, more or less. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a lot. It's a lot. I really... It's good it's productive but um it's exhausting you know yeah so matt uh brings up an interesting point here he says that my my wife and i had a few combos about the value of homemade when it comes to tech and that's been leading me to look for hobbies outside of programming i want value of creating things for myself my family and programming doesn't do that i can yeah i totally feel that 
Uh, and I think oftentimes for me, sometimes I feel like programming is the only way I know how to do that. And, and what that really means is just get away from the computer more and learn how to do it other ways, you know, for, for me anyway. Uh, but yeah, I think for a long time, I sort of like searched for, and I still probably do now even like search for that feeling in tech, which is where I think honestly, a lot of my struggles come from. Mm-hmm. And I imagine your relationship with music is, I don't know, still pretty fraught. Like you still probably view it as work. Right. Yep. Making music. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You can't, you can't just, just, just chill, chill and I think noodle on something. I think if it were jamming with people, I'd be okay. If I had friends to play with, I'd probably be okay about it. But, uh, th- is there something about like, I, I mean, I would go and, and sit in a bus and I would bring my guitar in the bus and I would sit and play and practice and practice and practice. So it was sort of like a laptop, the laptop goes everywhere kind of thing. Right. Um, so that muscle memory hasn't like haven't atrophied for whatever reason it should, but it hasn't. But I think it'd be okay if I had some people to jam with or something. Or like pick up a new instrument just to uh, screw around with it. Yeah. See you get. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've talked about like uh, getting a drum kit at some point or something like that. So maybe turn in, turn into the animal uh, from the Muppets. Well, there's no expectation there then, right? You're not setting yourself up for failure. I think I would just be mad that I weren't good yet. That's <laughs> <laughs> so why you just uh, use, you just be a drum programmer. That's always one of the, the most frustrating things to me, though, is like mentally you can, if you pick up a guitar and you haven't played it in a long time, mentally it's there, but physically it's not. Your, your fingers just can't do what you, your mind wants them to do. Mm-hmm. And it's frustrating. So yeah, I'm feeling pretty, hopefully, hopefully the next couple of episodes, I'll have some like actual tech stuff to break down that I've been working on. So what do you mean it's actual tech stuff? You just talked to us a half hour for like features, script internals. Well, I mean like features that I'm, that I'm building. So, uh, this, uh, this weekend I'm going to try, uh, so I don't think maybe I've mentioned Rodinia before. It's basically just a Reddit clone of, of sorts, but like something that Jamie and I wanted to work on for fun. And, uh, it's, it's, uh, focusing on environmental law and policy and conservation and stuff. So eventually you want to have like educational content on it as well. Uh, but right now it's just a Reddit clone. <laughs> and so instead of just upvotes and downvotes, I wanted to add emoji reactions to stories. And so I'm modeling out like how I want to approach that, like different approaches um, and how I want to like handle rendering the emojis. Like, do I just want to reach for a library? Do I want to try building it? Could it be fun to build that? Cause I haven't really learned about Unicode and different things of that nature. So I think there's some opportunities for learning and fun uh, in that in that project. Did you see that uh, that fun Unicode uh, snippet I posted in our Discord the other day? Yeah, I saw Wes Boss at one point on Twitter a while back doing the same thing, like with the family emoji, how it's like four individual distinct entities somehow. Yeah, so basically I wrote this uh, in, in Elixir, you can pattern match on strings, uh, but only if the string is at the beginning. And so what I did was I wrote a function that checks like is the boy emoji at the beginning of a string and so you know you check it with a poop emoji and it says no you check it with the boy emoji and it says yes but then if you have a string that is like the family emoji that has a boy in it uh that also passes <laughs> <laughs> even though it's one uh one single yeah one single thing and what's especially weird is vs code's terminal actually displays it wrong it doesn't know how to handle it so in iTerm, if you paste in, uh, if you type in the family emoji, it's a single character with with three people all huddled together, right? 
But if you take that same thing and copy it over to VS Code's terminal, uh, it looks like three individual, hmm. you know, characters next to each other. So strange, and just the the, the vagaries of of Unicode are are boundless. <laughs> the vagaries of Unicode are boundless. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I already know how like the database can look. Um, that's not that hard, really, for that side of it. But I want to try to think about okay, that was solution number one. What's two and three? Uh, that's I want to try to practice that a little bit more mm-hmm. with stuff. So yeah, it should be it should be fun. I uh, I, I uh, was working on a, a little side project ham radio app that involved like ranking scores of people, you know, first, second, third, fourth, fifth place, and uh, <clears throat> I came upon the idea of using the gold silver and bronze metal emojis for first second and third mm-hmm. and just added a great little bit of color it was fun uh you know everyone knows what it means you know you don't have to put one two and three it's fine and uh i don't know it just gave it a little more sort of meaning for for uh the scoreboard thing that was i i am very pro emoji design i will wholeheartedly support this i can emoji design but i can't design design <laughs> <laughs> rodinia was a Neato Protorozoic supercontinent mm-hmm. that assembled 1.1 to 0.9 billion years ago. Is this separate from Pangaea? Yeah. Similar idea, though. Oh, no, it's the same thing. All right. Pangaea was renamed Rodinia. Yeah, yeah. Um, Today I learned. Yeah, so basically, yeah, the idea is, is, you know, a lot, of, I don't know, it feels like a lot of specifically, like, you know, nature or news or conservation news or there'd be the listicle city, right? So, uh, yeah, that's what this is, is like, you know, a place for um, people that are in the know to sort of curate, not necessarily gatekeep. I don't want to be gatekeepy, but curate. Well, we'll just, we'll go curate, uh, curate information that you can look at. And eventually it would be cool to get more nonprofits involved as well. So for example, uh, Russian Riverkeeper, which is what Jamie works for, you know, maybe they, maybe we could do something with them where they could produce content, educational content or informational content. Uh, so like particularly right now, they're doing a ton of work around the drought, uh, and water issues in Northern California. And, uh, there's a lot of, wineries and there's a lot of um agriculture up there and there's a lot of uh conversations happening about who should have what water and uh yeah so there's there's i think there's a lot of stuff that i would like to learn that they know but they don't it's just kind of like in inside their their company now so eventually i don't know what it's going to look like but eventually it would be cool to have you know more educational information or like if i want to if I want to learn about it, it kind of points me in the right direction. So, do you uh, you have a URL to share for Rodinia, or is it not? Oh, it's Rodinia dot report, but it's like there's like nothing there really. We'll put a link in the show notes. Yeah, I like this design though. It's just two colors, man. <laughs> I know it's just just so it's just better than anything I could ever do. They're like <laughs> I just I don't care. It's so simplistic and nice, yeah, and clean. And I really love. I'm a, I'm a sucker for like a a Manila uh, background color. Yeah, yeah, I like it. So slap some emojis on there and call it good. Eventually, you'll be able to like I don't know react with uh, a sob. I I don't know. I'm trying to not like I'm sharing stories on it right now, but I'm trying not to be like doomsday <laughs> with all the stuff that I'm putting on it. So yeah, <laughs> eventually, you know, it could be you know working on like converse, like you know commenting and stuff like that. But I don't know. 
I haven't uh, thought that far ahead yet. It's just uh, a space that I continue to I can continue to work on and get in maintenance and learning mode instead of you know constantly the first half of a project over and over again. Look at Hacker News. Like that site hasn't changed in what twenty years. It's still like already looks worse than this, or you know this already looks better than that. <laughs> well, there's still time for me to to ruin it. Absolutely. <laughs> I believe in you. It's a, it's a, it's a, such a new top level domain that not even recognized by Notion. Really? Yeah. Oh yeah, I see that. I had a fun, I had a fun bug. Uh, not really a bug, but it just sort of mystified me for a minute. Was uh, I needed to start testing uh, subdomain support for uh, for Dockyard for the app, mm-hmm. and. So what have I always done? I go into my Etsy host file, I make, you know, app name.dev, and I make like a subdomain.app.dev, right? Uh, and so then I went to that, you know, I made the host file, and then <laughs> navigated to the URL, and it wouldn't connect. Just sit there. It's like, what? It's clearly, uh, clearly could, you know, was resolving, was trying to think, but could not connect to the server. So I look, I'm like, wow, why is it HTTPS? So I took out HTTP, you know, changed to HTTP, press enter, or, or just changed it right to HTTPS. What, what is going on here? I mean, I remembered that .dev is now an actual top-level domain. Oh, like it's a real one. Yeah. And it's one of the ones that is HTTPS only. Really? Yeah, it's it's a TLD that is only only uh, allowed to serve HTTPS over it, and so uh, yeah, Safari just doesn't even try the HTTP version; it just freaking rewrites the URL and sends it. That was a fun one. Does Does anyone know how to get candle wax off of a mouse pad? Uh, more more candles. Well, I have this candle on my desk, so I can warm my hands up in the morning. And I just blew it out because I was just using it. And now there's candle wax on my desk or my mouse pad. No, that's good. The, the wax is your, uh, your mouse pad for improved speed. I don't want performance. it. I don't want it on there. Just like uh, wax in your board, right? Um, you sc- <laughs> I don't want that either because I have to clean the surfboard. Uh, one time I got hit by a stand-up paddleboarder when I was surfing. And he put a hole in my board. And so I had to like epoxy it and sand it down. So I guess you could be sanding your sanding your uh, board there. I'm sure it's that paddle boarder who who hit you, not you who hit them. No, it hit me. Seriously, I was okay. So do you know the rules of surfing? The rules no, of the really, wave. No, person I don't. person closest to the the inside of the curl gets like they have right away. Okay. So in our situation, if I'm looking, curls on the right, and the outside it's on the left. The person on the right has the right away. So okay. all the other thing to know is that. Uh, well, I guess like the difference between a surfboard and a stand-up paddleboard, right? A regular surfboard is way smaller. A stand-up paddleboard is like a semi truck, <laughs> right? So uh, I am surfing. I'm I'm not riding the wave. I'm coming back, and so I'm going left to the outside. I'm paddling left away from everybody. Got it. Got it. Stand-up paddleboarder is new, uh, and 
the wave was coming up. This person lost balance. I'm going left. The person lost balance and their board shot, their stand up shot forward and slammed into me. So basically I saw it coming and I rolled and it, it actually like hit my board and then hit me in the chin, like on the cheek and then like glanced off. So yes, they were doing the hitting Rockwell. (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. You can't you can't ride a, a wave if you're paddleboarding, can you? You're not really. You can, but not where not where this person was. Like they they shouldn't sure. have been there. They shouldn't have been where they were. Travesty. Yeah, travesty. They uh, people were people were mad about it, and they ran them off. So, thank you, people. Sad about this this candle wax on my my otherwise pristine mouse board mouse pad. Just heat it up, man. It, it's candle wax. It'll it literally will melt. I promise you. And it would melt my mouse pad. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I have to buy a new one now. <laughs> oh, shame. I'm just going to keep looking at it. All right. So <laughs> uh, what do we talk about today? TypeScript. I get, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so I want to know how a TypeScript makes people feel. That's all. That's simple. That's all I need to know. Uh, you can let them know on Twitter. You can let us know on Twitter. DNC cast. Is our username, screen name, whatever you want to call it. Sean is Sean Washbot, and I'm Shrockwell. We have a link in the chat from WebQueen, lifehacker.com slash how to remove candle wax from your stuff. That'll be there. Yeah, if you need if you need that link, there's some numbers on the end of it. If you need it, you can get it in the show notes at dnc.show. <laughs> Don't just go to that thing that I said. Well, you didn't see that. It, it is HTTPS, just, you know. But you didn't include. We got to like, be clear about it now. You didn't include the five eight three four four five seven that's appended <laughs> to the end of the URL. It's low. It's kebab case. Yeah. So. Uh, well, we got a lot of show notes. Uh, a whole page of links here. DNC show. You can find them there, and also in the uh, podcast player of your choice. I don't know if you know this, but uh, your podcast player has show notes. Just scroll down. Apple Podcasts. It's there. I promise you. It's just hiding. Although I need to check because apparently now they're stripping out HTML from uh, from a lot of the public feeds. Really? So I wonder if our show notes are all gunked up now. Checking. They are poorly formatted, but functional. The links work. So, but it looks like garbage. So it goes. What can you do? Uh, use a better podcast player. <laughs> We're also streaming on Twitch uh, Thursday night, 6 Pacific, 9 Eastern, twitch.tv slash dnccast. Uh, come on by. It's a lot of fun. And uh, we'd love to see your face. So, you, I mean, you're seeing our face, but we're, you know, seeing your metaphorical avatar face in the chat. Yeah. And if you can't make it, but you still want to hang out with us and the other people of the, the DNC community, we have a Discord available. So, again, if you go to the aforementioned uh, podcast player and you swipe down, there'll be a, a link to an invite to Discord and you should join it. Shout out to new Discord friend, Aki who uh, had a... We had a very heated discussion about starter Pokemon. Apparently, he is a trader. He had Pokemon Blue, but uh, he used Charmander as his starter. So, shame on you, Aki, for uh, not going with the blue. Yeah, you started it. You started this fight. I'm looking at it now. (laughs) 
I mean, hey, just trying to have a just have a lively conversation. Yeah. But uh, Squirtle starter all the way. Just saying, for the record. Well, that's that. <laughs> cool, 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 cool. I'll uh, I'll talk to you later. All right, see you. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>